Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, we are in the middle of a series for the rest of the summer through Labor Day, uh, talking about leadership in the church. And the reason for that is because we're entering a time as a congregation where we're going to be formalizing our leadership structure. I believe uh, I was on vacation for the last week or so, and, but I believe last week Jonathan spoke to you about the dual nature of the mission of the church being both in word and deed ministry, that we have been given a ministry in like kind with Jesus' ministry who came proclaiming the gospel of of God, both in word and in deed. And so, in keeping with those kind of categories, the church has two main offices, and we're going to be talking about both of those. The office of elder, which is kind of responsible for the deed-based ministry of the church. Uh, the office of deacon, which is responsible for the deed-based ministry. So, word being belonging to the elders, deed to the deacons. And so, we're going to be talking about that for the next few weeks. Today, we're going to talk specifically about what it means, what the Bible means by elders, what they do and how we're to respond to them. So that's there you go. That's where we are today, okay? Uh, if you have a Bible and you want to read along with us, uh, we're going to be looking at three particular passages, one from Titus chapter 1, one from 1 Peter chapter 5, and then from Hebrews 13, just verse 17. So Titus 1 talking about kind of Paul's instructions to Titus about appointing elders in every city. 1 Peter 5, which is an exhortation from Peter, who is an elder, to the other elders of the church. And then Hebrews 13, which is kind of the church's response to the leaders in its midst. And so looking at all those things. So let's read together. It will be on the screen behind me. It's printed for you in your worship folder. You can also try to flip in your Bible if you'd like. But let's, let's do it. Okay. Titus 1. To Titus, my true child and a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Now pay attention to verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy. And disciplined, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he might be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So there you see the ministry of the word given to the elder. Now Peter's exhortation from First Peter five: So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Not in compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And then to the church, the writer of Hebrews from Hebrews thirteen seventeen, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So, this is God's Word. Uh, I'm making assumptions, but if you're here this morning and you're familiar with church, and so I'm going to talk to those even mildly familiar with church, and if you're here and you're not a Christian, you've never really been a part of a church, this is going to be probably something that's new to you, but most people in this room are familiar with one of two kinds of church leadership structure. Either hierarchical or congregational. So let's deal with each of those. Hierarchical, what I mean in a hierarchical structure, which would either be Catholic or Episcopal or even Methodist, 
it means that there are, you know, there are different tiers of leadership, but ultimately authority rests in the hands of a single person, either a pope or an archbishop or some other form of office. So there's local pastors, then there's bishops that oversee those pastors, then there's archbishops and up and up and up and up until you finally get to the, the ultimate authority, which is either you know, like a pope or an archbishop or somebody. Uh, on the other side, you know, pendulum swing to this side in a congregational system or structure, which is, which would be if you're familiar with Baptist or Pentecostal or most non-denominational churches, the authority in congregational churches rests in the majority vote. It's a democratic model. The church governs itself. Now, what's fascinating is this, what's something that's happening in our culture. A lot of churches that are congregational are pendulum swinging to a more hierarchical model where the authority rests in the hands of a senior pastor, uh, one person making all of the decisions all by himself. Now, Presbyterianism, which we are a Presbyterian church, and Presbyterianism gets its name from its structure of leadership. Uh, really, it's meant to be a middle ground between the two poles of hierarchy on one side, uh, which is one person making all the decisions, congregationalism on the other side, which is every decision being, you know, down to the color of the carpet in the bathroom made through a congregational vote where everybody's a part of every decision. Presbyterianism understands that government in the church has been placed into the hands of what we see here are elders in the Greek, presbyterios in the Greek, which from where we get Presbyterian. So it's not one person making the decisions. It's not everybody making decisions. It's a body of elders who've been identified and elected by the congregation who have spiritual authority in the church. That's a, that's a quick overview. I'm doing a, lot of, I'm doing a lot of housekeeping before we really get into things this morning because I've just got to set the stage. Now, uh, we see this... Because we, we, Presbyterian churches do this because they see it as the pattern in Scripture. So, for example, in Titus chapter 1, verse 5, you see Paul's command to Titus to put what remained into order. And his explanation of what that means is there in verse 5 is to appoint elders in every town. So Paul had a pattern of establishing elder leadership in his church plants. And this seems to have been influenced by the model of elder leadership in Israel. Israel had elders, as you can see in places like Deuteronomy chapter 1 and Exodus chapter 18. So there is this model in the scripture of it being elder churches being led by men identified and then commissioned and ordained as elders in the local congregations. But I got to give three points of clarification. And these are going to be broad strokes that we're going to come back to later. And a couple of them are controversial. And so I just need you to promise to stick with me and and talk to me about anything you might be confused about. But three points of clarification as we talk about what these elders do this morning. The first is just this. The first is the concepts of plurality and parity. Biblically, whenever you see elders, it's always elders plural. Spiritual authority in the Bible, this this is my conviction as I read it, is never put into the hands of a single person. It's just wisdom, right? I mean, as the old phrase goes, power corrupts. How do you finish it? Absolute power corrupts? Absolutely. And so, biblically, whenever there are elders, you'll see there in verse 5, appoint elders, plural, in every town. So there's always the concepts of plurality. There's more than one. And parity. There, it, nobody ranks any higher than the other. They're all on even footing. So when we get elders in this church, even though I am the, you know, what we call in our this is ridiculous nomenclature, but senior pastor which how a 35-year-old person can be a senior anything is ridiculous. 
Nevertheless, that is my title according to our, you know, the way our churches do do things. When we get elders, I will not have any higher ranking. I, my voice won't be any greater at the table. I'll have a unique function, but I will be one among many. Plurality and parity. No hierarchy. Second, we see in the scripture that there are two, that there are two kinds of elders. There are what we refer to as ruling elders and teaching elders, which are the pastors. And this distinction is really the result of a biblical observation primarily from passages like 1 Thessalonians 5.17, and I'll just read it to you. Uh, there Paul writes, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So all of the elders in the church rule, but some of them have particular gifts so that they also teach and preach. Thus we call them teaching elders. These teaching elders are typically the paid pastoral staff, men who have been to seminary and trained to teach and preach like Jonathan and I have, they spend most of their time preparing for their role, which requires that they be free from other work responsibilities, for the most part anyway. That the double honor there that Paul speaks of, most people see that or interpret that as being the financial support of the church. In other words, the church sees such value in their work of teaching and preaching that they support them so they can spend their time preparing and doing that. But then there are other men who are alongside of them who also help in the ruling. So two kinds of elders, ruling and teaching. We're going to come back to that. But then third, and this is the one that's going to get me in trouble, and we're just going to have to uh, be, be careful and deal with it, but according to the, the standards that are done, see, I'm even mumbling and stumbling to get into it because I'm nervous. My heart's just started pounding a little bit faster. Isn't that funny? Uh, and, and it is just to say this, that according to our denominational standards and according to our own convictions as we, as we read the Scriptures, this office of elder is an office in the church that is reserved for men alone. Huge topic. Uh, that we have that needs careful explanation uh, because of our because of our understanding of the pattern of male headship in the scripture. We're going to spend a whole week, about three weeks from now, talking about it. So I'm going to just ask you to sit tight with that, and we'll come back to it. But know that the office that we speak of this morning is really one that is meant to be occupied by men alone. So the concepts of plurality and parity, two types of elders, ruling and teaching. And this office being reserved for men. So with those introductory comments out of the way, I really wanted to look at a number of things from these passages this morning. And you'll see them as the four points of the outline that I've given to you. I want us first to look at the words that describe the office of elder. The words in the scripture, the etymology of this concept of elder. Secondly, the metaphor for elder leadership. Because the scripture paints a really vivid metaphor for it. Third, the story or the meta-narrative within which elders do their job. And then lastly, this idea of just stewardship and that elders are really stewards. So those are the four things. We're going to go through them quickly try to get this done as best we can, okay? So let's just start with this. There are words that are very important in these passages of scripture that help us understand what we mean when we talk about the office of elder. And as you can tell, this is much more teaching kind of than, than typical than preaching. It's really we're teaching more to get ourselves prepared for this. Okay. Now, try to follow me along in this. There are two Greek words in the New Testament for the leadership of the church. Presbyterios is a Greek word that refers to elder from, from which we get our, you know, our term Presbyterian. The other word is episkopos. It's another Greek word. And that is going to sound familiar to you because that's the word from which we get the word episcopal. So those are the two words. Now, the older translations render presbyterios elder and episcopos bishop. So if you have a, new, if you have a, 
King James or probably even a new King James or maybe the NAS, some, one of those older translations, you'll come across these words being both elder and bishop, uh, which has led some churches to distinguish the office, elder being kind of what's in, the guy that's in charge of the local congregation, bishop being a higher office, but the ESV along with the NIV, which I think is helpful, translates this Greek word presbyterios, translates it elder, and you'll see it there, verse 5 of, of, uh, first of, of Titus 1, appoint elders, that's, that's Greek, Greek word, excuse me, presbyterios, verse 1 of 1 Peter 5, so I exhort the elders, again presbyterios, and then what the ESV does is this word episkopos, which is this other word, gets translated overseer. Uh, so there's elder and there's overseer, which is a, probably a better translation. And now, from both Titus 1 and 1 Peter 5, it appears that these two Greek words describe the same office. So, for example, follow along with me if you can. I know this is hard. But in, in Titus 1, Paul instructs Titus that he was to, to appoint elders, presbyterios, in every town. And then as he begins to describe the necessary character for an elder, in verse 7, notice that he switches and he says, for an overseer. That word is episkopos, must be above reproach, etc., etc. So it seems like he's using the words interchangeably. Again, same thing in 1 Peter 5. Peter writes in verse 1, to the elders as a fellow elder. Both words are presbyterios in the Greek. And then in verse 2, you'll see that he tells them to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. It's interesting, that word, exercising oversight, is the word episkopos. Same word. And so he's connecting these two ideas of elders. So two words that both describe the same office. But why two words and what do they teach us about that office? So let's deal with them one at a time. First, with this word elder or presbyterios. And it's simple, really. The word means older man. Older man. It describes someone who's advanced, either in years or wisdom or spiritual maturity. In our culture, I was just... Fascinated by thinking through this in our culture, we so value youth. We um, we dye our hair to hide the gray, right? And we we resent growing older. We talk about it as if it's a curse. And I just want to say to you, the scripture does not talk about it that way at all. In the scripture, there is something wonderful, even beautiful, about growing older. The Bible talks about gray hair as if it should be a goal for all of us, right? Something we should, and I know I'm 35, I don't have any yet, and so check back in with me in 20 years or so or whatever, maybe five. I'm starting to get it right here a little bit, though, but maybe 10, maybe two, who knows. The scripture says that gray hair is a crown of honor we should wear with pride, not something we should try to hide. Thank you. And I really think we've got to change our way of thinking. I mean, I'm a 35-year-old guy planning a church, and I know I'm 10 to 15 years away from my best years as a pastor. I've just not made enough, you know, mistakes yet. I've not lived enough life yet. And so elders, Paul says, using this word, older men, should be just that. They should be men who have advanced far enough in life that they've gained the wisdom and the character necessary for leadership. They need to be men who've sinned enough that they've learned to be patient with other sinners. You know, men who've suffered enough, they've learned to pray, who've made enough mistakes so they can avoid other, you know, help any other people avoid the same mistakes. I mean, really, if you're a parent with small children in the room, just track with me on this, and you're having trouble, you're up against a tough time with your kids, who are you going to go to? Are you going to go to your 20-year-old friends 
you know, who have no kids but think kids are so wonderful? Or are you going to go and find the David and Gigi savants of the world who this weekend are dropping off their fourth daughter, you know, their youngest daughter, the youngest of four at college, and coming home, just the two of them, after 25-plus years of parenting? Who are you going to go to? I know who I'm going to. And if you're 20, I'm sorry, it's not you. See, so what defines the elder is this idea of maturity or wisdom or character. Not necessarily age, but let's be honest, age sure helps. And then there's this second word, episkopos, which is a compound word that literally means to watch over. That's what it means. It means to watch over. It's used to describe a guardian or a curator or a superintendent or um, someone who has responsibility for caring for another person. So... The first word, this word elder, describes the kind of person who's fit for the office. The second word, overseer, describes the work of the office. See, elders are given responsibility of overseeing the spiritual lives of those under their care. As Peter puts it in verse 3 of 1 Peter 5, those in their charge. That phrase is one word in the Greek. It's the Greek word kleron, from which we get the English words clerical or clergy. It's interesting. The word... Refer, when he says those in your charge, the word refers to sticks or pebbles that were used to draw lots in the ancient world. And so what you would do is you would write your name on a pebble. You know, write. I mean, you'd have to, like, you know, take a, something and inscribe it and put it in a, a bag. And then somebody would reach into the bag and pull it out. And if your name was the one they pulled out, then you're the one chosen. And the idea Peter is trying to convey is that the elders he's writing to, he wants them to see that their names that they had drawn, names of people that were their responsibility. I mean, it's just, this is just good, you know, natural, normal ministry stuff. I mean, I knew this as a 22-year-old youth pastor. We would go to summer camp, and the first thing I would do, you know, 100 kids at summer camp, I have... 20 adult leaders. So we would assign them family groups, and I would go, and Jamie would go on those trips with us all the time. So I'd say, Jamie, for this week, you're responsible for, this is your job. Here are the five kids. You're in charge of Jeremy and Jessica and Brooke and Kevin, you know, and Lisa. Those are your five kids. And you need to stay with them at all times, keep your eye on them. You know, it's your job to know where they are and what they're doing so they don't get lost or left or get into any kind of trouble, right? That's what you would do. And that's the basic idea here, too, that elders are overseers. They've drawn names, and those names are those that are in their charge. And they're put in charge of them to look after them and care for them. And so elders are overseers. Those are the the words. That's the etymology of what we're talking about. But, see, there's also a metaphor. And I'm so glad that we get this metaphor because it really helps, I think, us to understand what we're talking about when we talk about these leaders that are called elders. And the metaphor is just this, that elders are called to be shepherds. And so 1 Peter 5, 2, Peter tells the elders to shepherd the flock of God, exercising oversight. Overseeing and shepherding are linked together in a number of places in the scripture. And so this metaphor is the most commonly, you know, employed in all of the Bible to talk about the role and the function of elders. They're shepherds. They shepherd God's flock. And this implies a number of things that I just want to To share first, it implies something about all of us in our struggle with sin, that we are, if they are shepherds, then we are like sheep. And the thing about sheep is that they are universally known for being stupid and stubborn. (laughs) 
biologically sheep uh, have small brains. They're constantly wandering off and getting lost and needing to be rescued. They get sick easy. They require constant care. They have no way of protecting themselves against wolves and other predators. And so, uh, let's be honest, we're being insulted here. Right? I mean, I, 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 I told my kids, we play this game all the time on trips, especially like the one we had, you know, if you could be any kind of animal, what kind of animal would you want to be? Right? You ever played that game? And, of course, my pad response is an otter. Don't ask me why. I just think they're cool. Um, but sometimes I want to, you know, I'm, a, I'm an eagle or a lion. My kids usually want to be dolphins or horses or tigers or even dragons. Uh, but in all of my years of playing that game as a child and now as a parent, in all of my many years, I've not once ever found anybody who answered the question, I want to be a sheep. <laughs> have you? Because let's be honest. Sheep don't have sharp claws. They don't run fast. They're not cool. They're slow, fluffy, stupid, smelly, weak, and helpless. We're being insulted. The scripture is saying that's you. I mean, you might consider yourself to be regal like a bald eagle or ferocious like a lion, but in reality, you're sheep. And so secondly, a second metaphor, I mean, a second thing the metaphor implies is if that's true, then, then the, what he's trying to teach us by this is that the threat is real, that sheep, sheep are incredibly vulnerable. They get sick easily. They can't defend themselves against predators. They can't run fast. They don't have natural camouflage. You know, there's no sh- sharp teeth or claws. And when God tells us that we're like sheep, he's trying to help us see that there are threats that we face that are very real. And in 1 Peter 5, as you move forward, Peter goes on to talk about Satan, our enemy, the devil, as a prowling lion who's wandering around seeking somebody to devour. And you know, I thought about it. Sheep don't normally fare very well against lions. So the threat is real. The threat is real. And the worst part is that the sin, that is not something that, the sin is not something that just exists out there. If it was, we could try to avoid it and maybe do a fairly good job, but It's in here. It's with us everywhere we go. The Bible says our hearts are desperately wicked and deceitful. And the scariest thing is not how desperately wicked our hearts are, but how easily we're deceived into thinking they're not desperately wicked. We're in real trouble. The threat is real. And that leads to the third thing the metaphor implies, and that is that we all need to be shepherded. We need somebody to look after us. We need somebody to protect us from our enemies and from ourselves. We need somebody to model for us how we're supposed to live and to help us when we're sick or weak and to correct us and rebuke us when we're wrong. And that's what a shepherd does. That's what the shepherd did. The shepherd's job was to protect the sheep from predators and to lead the flock where they needed to go. And I, I, went, I remember when I was a young man, I left my church here in the city of Winter Haven. I was maybe 25 or 26 at the time. And uh, I had been on staff at churches for seven or eight years before that. And I, my, my brother-in-law, who I love dearly, I remember one day he came to me and said, you know, I'm praying one thing for you. I'm praying that you will find somebody who will pastor you. And I was a pastor, you know, even though I was so young. And, and I thought, oh, man, I've never thought about that. But I started to think about my life. And I really, I had never, I had never in all of my pastoring of people, never had anybody who was really pastoring me. And God was gracious enough to send us to Lakeland, to a church there, and I found some men who became my pastors, and they're men who do this, who, who protect me, who watch out for me, who care for me, who correct me, who rebuke me, who encourage me. I need to be shepherded, and you need to be shepherded too. And that's the metaphor. So see, the words, 
in the metaphor, but we also need, just making our way through this, we need to talk about the story within which elders do their work. And here's what I mean by this. I have a new life verse. The story. Let's talk about the story. I have a new life verse. It's First Timothy. We read it a couple weeks ago. First Timothy 4.8. It says, bodily exercise profits little. That's my new life verse. <laughs> Actually, it goes on to say... <laughs> I wanted to put it on the screen, but I haven't figured out how to do that yet, Terry. We'll talk about that later because just that's my life first. First Timothy four eight. Bodily training is of some value. But listen to what he says. Godliness is of value in every way as it holds the promise for the present life and also the life to come. Now, there's something in that verse. There's something <laughs> that we need to learn. He's saying Paul's saying there's something more than all this. There's there's another life. There's a life to come, he says. There's there's something, you know, there's an invisible reality that's out there. There's something more than just food and body and Botox. I mean, you're more. This is what this is what that verse is saying. You are more than your waist size or your hair color or your age. You're a soul. I mean, your soul and the soul is the part of you that will last forever. That one day, and this is true, you know, one day, despite all of our efforts to prolong the inevitable, our bodies will expire and return to the dust. We are wasting away. And I know it's morbid, but it's true. That we're all going to grow old and wrinkly and eventually die. But what the Bible says is that even in death, there's a part of us that will live on for all eternity. And in that verse in 1 Timothy 4, Paul says that we should strive to beautify our souls along with our bodies because our souls will be around long after our bodies are gone. Bodily exercise profits little. I love it. Right? He's saying don't spend all your time trying to beautify your body. Beautify your soul. Beautify your soul. And the fact that nobody lives that way shows how absent any sense of eternal perspective is from our thinking We've lost our story. We've lost our meta narrative. We lost the larger story that tells us where we're coming from and where we're heading. But that's exactly what elders are called to do. They engage with people under their care with eternity in mind. And look at Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13 says they watch over souls. That means they help people beautify their souls. They help people get ready for the life to come. Hebrews also says that they that they one day will have to give an account. You see that. Look at Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them for their keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Now, what does that mean? It means just this, that we're headed for a reckoning. And that's what I mean when I talk about the story, that every story has a beginning and an end. And if you're in the middle of the story, the only way you can make sense of what's going on in the middle of the story is to know where you've come from and to know where you're going. We know the end of the story, our destination. We know it. It is the judgment seat of Christ. Where we will all give an accounting of our lives with what we did with this life to beautify our souls and prepare ourselves for the life of uh, the life to come. Hebrews says, Hebrews says that the elders who watch over souls will be there and they will be asked to account for the souls that their responsibility. That scares me to death. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, who's a Puritan theologian and pastor, widely considered the best thinker and theologian America has ever produced. He served as a pastor in New England during the First Great Awakening in the first half of the 18th century. He served his church for 23 years, and at the end of 23 years was asked to resign. His farewell sermon. If you, if, you, know, if you could give a farewell sermon, what would the title of your farewell sermon be? Wow, it's been great. Or, you know, God is love. Or... His farewell sermon, 
You ready? Here's the title. Minister, ministers and their people must meet one another before Christ's tribunal on the day of judgment. Okay. And the doctrine he was expounding in the sermon is just this, that ministers and those under their care would have an appointment with one another on the day of judgment to give an account before Christ, the judge of their behavior toward one another and the relationship they bore to each other in this world. According to Edwards on that day, the minister will answer for whether he preached the gospel faithfully and shepherded those under his care well, and his people will be judged as to whether they listened and heeded the words of God and the minister's instruction and correction. He goes so far as to say that we will act as testifiers against one another or for one another on that day. That's where we're headed. If you're married, if you're married, death may separate you in this life, but according to the Bible and what Edwards is trying to teach us, If death separates you in this life, you have an appointment with one another on the day of judgment. Where you give an accounting for the way you treated one another as husband and wife. If you're a parent, you have an appointment with your children at the day of judgment. And elders are those who watch over souls as men who must give an account because all of their work, all of the work of the pastors and teachers and elders of this church and every church are to prepare people for that day. When we will stand before him to be judged and to give accounting for our life. That's sobering. Very sobering. Which is why we need to end uh, by meditating on the gospel together with this idea of just stewardship. What does it mean that elders are stewards? You see, it brings us to this last thing, and that is just this. That the pastors and elders don't work for the church. They work for the chief shepherd. They're stewards. The language is subtle, but don't miss it. Peter says, look at verse 2 of 1 Peter 5. Peter says, shepherd the flock of God. You see that? It's God's flock. This is the Lord Jesus Christ's church, not my church. Peter says there's a chief shepherd who is coming who will bring a reward for those who shepherd his people in his absence. He's the one that was promised in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 34 that we read earlier you know, today. I, I'm a husband, lowercase h, but he is the husband. I'm a father, lowercase f, he is the father. I'm a pastor, I'm a shepherd, lowercase s, but he is the shepherd. He's the chief shepherd. And if you're shepherding, whether it be your children or your students or your neighbors, your steward, your job is to represent the chief shepherd and to get people to him. And in John chapter 10, Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd, he says. And it means two things in particular, just two things, and then we're done. He says... I'm the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. John 10, 14. That, that's a remarkable statement. That he is your shepherd means he knows you perfectly. He knows you perfectly. Charles Spurgeon, who was the great preacher in London at the end of the 19th century, he, he had a sermon on this, and he just wrote, he wrote this. He said, he knows their constitutions, those that are weak and feeble, those that are nervous and frightened, those that are strong, those that have a tendency to presumption. Those that are sleepy, those that are brave, those that are sick, sorry, worried, or wounded. He knows those that are hunted by the devil, those that are caught up between the jaws of the lion. He knows their feelings, fears, and frights. He knows the secret ins and outs of every one of us better than any of us knows himself. Isn't that great? If he is your shepherd, first it means he knows you perfectly, but then secondly, not only does he know you perfectly, it means he loves you perfectly. He loves you perfectly. 
He goes on to say, Jesus does in John 10, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And that's amazing. And Spurgeon goes on to say in his sermon, and I just, I just love this. He says, they say of human love that it is blind, but Christ's love has many eyes, and all its eyes are open, and yet he loves us still. See, Jesus knows even your sins. He knows your failures and your weaknesses and all the ways you've screwed things up. He knows every, you know, he knows everything about you, both good and bad. And his knowledge of your sin uh, did not cause him to not love you. It only increased his love for you. And ultimately, it was his knowledge of your sin and your moral failure and your powerlessness to save yourself and his love for you that led him to the cross. And as Jonathan said, ultimately, to protect you and me, he had to be destroyed. And to provide for us, he had to be extinguished. I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Now you see, that's the gospel. And it's that gospel reality. If the gospel reality of Jesus' sacrificial love for us, if that is what is at the center of the church's life, if that gets to the center of our life, if that begins to define us, then, then it changes the way leaders lead. See, the gospel, believing that, looking at Jesus, changes the way leaders lead. Leaders take their cue from the chief shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. That's why Peter says, if you look there in 1 Peter 5, not under compulsion, but willingly. In other words, he says, stare at Jesus, loving you and shepherding you and giving his life for you until it creates in you a desire to shepherd other people joyfully out of the overflow of the love that you have from him. Do it. Don't do it for shameful gain, he says. Don't do it selfishly. Don't be selfishly motivated. Don't do it for what you can get out of it. That's not how Jesus treated you, right? And don't throw your authority and your power around. Not domineering, Peter says, those over your charge. Don't lord over them. That's what that word means. Don't, don't impose your will on other people. Become a servant. Be an example. Jesus laid down his life for you. See, the gospel changes how leaders lead. But it also changes the way followers follow. Hebrews commands us to obey our leaders and submit to their authority in such a way that their work of watching over our souls will be a joy, not a burden. Hebrews thirteen seventeen. There it is. And you have to trust the people leading you in order to do that. You do. And most times, pastor types like me are not very trustworthy. Let's be honest. Which is why you better go to Jesus. I mean, see, I'm oftentimes selfish and greedy and in it for me, but not him. I mean, he's the good shepherd who laid down his life. For you, you can trust him. And if he says it's good for you to obey your parents' kids or to obey your leaders, then it's good even when it doesn't feel good. Because he loves you so much so that he gave his life and he has your best interests at heart. And if the gospel begins to take root in your heart, it will make you a great follower because you won't always have to be concerned with yourself and with your own needs. You can trust that Jesus is going to take care of you. He laid down his life for you. You see, what a great opportunity. That's what elders do. They're those who oversee. They're shepherds who watch over souls as men who will ultimately give an account. And they're stewards of the shepherding of the chief shepherd who is so great and so good that in his love for us, despite our sin and his knowledge of us and our sin, laid down his life to save us. And if we believe that, if the gospel comes home, then it'll change. We'll be a holy people. Our leaders will lead differently than any other leaders in all of the world. And those of us called to follow will follow differently. And the fruit that we bear in that will be to his great glory. And that's what we desire. So let's pray that together this morning. Uh, Lord Jesus, thank you for the opportunity to stare 
at you and your scripture, and I pray that in my weakness and my frailty that you would come and take my words and use them to impress upon our hearts the reality of the things that we've just spoken of. Um, I love the catechism where it asks the children to acknowledge that they are not just bodies, but they have souls that last forever. And I pray that you would make us mindful of the fact that we are not just bodies. Life is more than food and more than the body, Jesus said. We are souls. And our souls, the scripture says, are more precious than all of the treasures in all of the world. And so help us to, to take weight of the reality of, of our souls and to be thoughtful about placing ourselves under the supervision and the authority of shepherds who have been given charge of our souls. Help our leaders lead in a way that is consistent with the gospel and to the glory of God. And help, the rest, help us follow. If we're followers, help us follow in ways that bring you great glory. And may you bear fruit in us. And may that fruit bring you pleasure. And may it bring you glory. And we pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. In such a sense of story. That's the story we're talking about, right? That this is not all there is. We're bound. Uh, for the land that has been promised. And we take very seriously, very seriously, the call to cultivate souls. Uh, every week, here in this, you know, in a typical gathering of our church, there are about 75 souls, fifth grade and under, that we care for. Uh, and those of you who, who teach, we, we want to, we want to cast incredible vision for how much we can accomplish in our city through the lives of the kids God's given to us over the next 25 and 30 and 40 and 50 years of ministry in the city of Winter Haven. And so to say thank you to you, in your worship folder you should have gotten an invitation to a children's ministry volunteer dinner, a kickoff dinner for this fall. Uh, semester, please make make preparations to come to that. This is just an opportunity for our children's ministry team and our staff to just say thank you for the good work you're doing with kids. If you're not serving with the children and you're interested, you're welcome to come and learn more about what we're trying to accomplish with our kids. But be mindful of that. That's a big thing coming up that we're really excited about. And now let me say this. I, I realize how frightening how utterly frightening the prospect of standing before the judgment seat of Christ can be, which is why, if your faith is in Jesus, the good news is is that when you go there, if you put your faith in him, it is not your record that will be on trial, it will be his. And where you have failed, he has been perfect. And his death for you was to atone for your sin, but he's also lived the life you should have lived. And so not only has your, have your sins become his, but you now receive his righteousness. That's the movement of the gospel, the great exchange. And so, if your faith is in Jesus, then this benediction belongs to you. No matter how poorly you have performed or badly you have failed, uh, the reality is, is that in Jesus Christ, the Father now looks upon you and smiles. And, and on that great day when you stand before him, uh, you will be hidden in Christ. And that's good news. So receive the benediction then as you go to shepherd and to lead or to follow in whatever capacity he sends you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.